Today, as we continue in our study in 1 Corinthians, Lord willing, we will finish chapter 12 today as Paul turns his focus uh, upon the body of Christ to show us what a blessing it is that we've been joined together to one another as we've been joined to the Lord by His Spirit. We're reading today, beginning in verse 12, and reading to the end of the chapter in verse 31. Uh, That last verse is a bit of a transitional verse between chapters 12 and 13. Uh, We'll look at the first half of it today, Lord willing, but uh, take the rest of it when we come back to see the way of love, as Paul speaks of it later. You can find that on page 959, if you've not yet found it, in our cart Bibles, the ESVs. We're going to read together, again, chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, beginning in verse 12 and reading on through verse 31. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord again in prayer and ask His blessing upon the reading and the hearing. Let's pray. Kind and gracious Heavenly Father, you have given us your truth and your word you have spoken in these last days through your Son. Help us to see something in your word which points us to your Son. We pray that you would work not only in our minds, we do ask that you would enrich our minds and knowledge of your body, but enrich our hearts as well to be worshipers of Jesus. Move our hands and our feet, in fact, our whole bodies as we see the picture of your whole body working together. O Lord, unite us in one indivisible body in Jesus Christ and move our hands and our hearts toward one another as we see something glorious in Jesus Christ in the body that you have given to your people and the body you have made us a part of. So help us, O Lord, uh, to have these things applied to our hearts and our lives. Help us to see your truth. Give us your spirit that that might happen to overcome our sin and our frailty, to rejoice in you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Here now God's Word as we find it, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. For just as the body is one, <coughs> excuse me, just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. 
If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he indeed add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. Here we are in Paul's section of 1 Corinthians where he's dealing with the gifts that God has given to his people. It made me stop and consider all the many ways, the many styles that we have of giving gifts to one another. I wonder if you've ever stopped to consider your own style of gift giving. There are lots of them. Uh, There is, for example, the low-impact giver. This is the giver that meets the bare minimum requirement. They give because it's the socially acceptable thing to do. If it's the right thing, but you don't put a lot of thought into it, this is the scented candle for your neighbor. Uh, this is the, uh, the gift card from your boss. This is the birthday card that shows up with a check in it from the aunt that you've only met twice in your entire life. It, it's, it's low impact giving. And all of us, probably one time or another, there's a time and a place for that sort of thing. There's also the utilitarian giver. This is generally the way fathers give gifts. Well, everybody on my list this year gets uh, a new set of jumper cables. You're going to need them eventually. You can always use a spare, and you never know when they might come in handy, so that's what you're going to get. We're going to meet a need with the gift. It's the utilitarian giver. There's, of course, also the perfectionist giver. Maybe you're one of those. The one who wants to be so personal in the gift that you give. You spend an enormous amount of time just getting to know the person who will receive your gift because you want to know exactly what they want, exactly what they desire, just what will make them the happiest when they open that box. And so you spend lots of time as well going to different stores because this one has almost the thing you're looking for, but not in the right color or not the right size. And you're anxious that the person loves the gift you've given, and you're devastated uh, if they don't immediately gush over it. Maybe you're the perfectionist giver. Then there is uh, the adventurous giver. The adventurous giver is a rare breed indeed. It's a little bit of a mix of some of the other things. They're trying to meet a need, and they're trying to do it in the perfect way, but, but they're so engrossed in knowing exactly what you need that they are willing to take the chance to get you something that you had no idea you would ever want or need or could use and have no idea what to do with it. Sometimes these gifts are extravagant gifts. So it's the friend who knows that you like to go to Starbucks, and so they go, I'll get you an espresso machine. Well, you, you would never think to buy yourself one of those, but this adventurous giver, they're willing to do that. But you know, with some of these gifts, there's a bit of a learning curve, isn't there? We need to grow into some of these things. Regardless, there are lots of ways that we can give gifts. I think this last category, the adventurous giver, I think that's a good way to summarize the way that that God gives gifts to his children. He always gives us something that is good and personal. It's never thoughtless. It's never just a, a trinket or a token. It doesn't just fit in the right place, but it's always the right thing. He's he gives good things to his children. And he meets our needs whether or not what we think we want might be in a different size or color. 
He's always good, and he always meets the need of his people, but he also gives us gifts that sometimes we have to grow into appreciating. That's exactly what we saw last week when we considered the spiritual gifts that the Spirit pours out upon his people. Not that everybody gets the thing that they would really love to have, but exactly what the Sovereign Spirit says, this is best for you and for the church, but you might have to grow to appreciate these things. We see the same thing in this much larger gift that we're considering today. We can consider the body of Christ, the gift to God's people, and really the gift of God's people. Well, this is the same way God gives this gift. It is exactly what you need, whether you think it is what you want or not. It is perfectly good, but we might have to grow into appreciating it in the way that the Lord wants us to see it. That's the focus in our passage today. It's, it's the, the body of Christ, or as he seems to use interchangeably, the church. Not as last week. You know, we were focusing last week on the Spirit's uh, gifts, and, and they do show up in the end of our passage, but the focus here is really not on the various gifts that the Holy Spirit gives, but the various people the Holy Spirit joins together. It's focused on the way that the body itself grows up to function and to flourish by the, uh, the blessing of the Spirit. Now, if you have an adventurous giver in your life, if you've ever opened one of those boxes that you're not quite sure what to do with, you know there are a few questions when you open that box and look upon that. What are the questions you might ask? Well, first, what is this thing? Thanks. What is it? How does it work? What is it supposed to do or look like or, or, or what, what happens with it? And then lastly, well, well what do I do with it? If it's going to radically change my life, how do I engage with this thing that you've given me? And today, as we approach the body of Christ, I want to approach it with those same three questions. What is it? How does it work? And what do we do with it? So, let's consider this adventurous gift of the body of Christ. What is the body of Christ? There are lots of ways we could answer that question. One legitimate answer, strangely enough, is to jump to one of the other uh, questions. Well, what does it do? And that's one of the ways that we sometimes speak of the body. That's one of the ways that you might explain a gift that somebody doesn't know what it is. Oh, what is this? Well, it steams your milk for your coffee in the morning, and it will revolutionize your, uh, your morning routine. That's what it does. That's how you explain what the church is, isn't it? And so we might talk of the church, and we say, well, the church is a bunch of people who worship, glorify Christ. There are people that witness in the world. There are people who support one another. That's one of the ways we might answer. That's not in this passage, so don't put that down in your notes. But there are two other answers that are in this passage. And we answer this question, what is the church? One, by, by saying, well, let's look at what it's made of. It's a question of composition. What is the church made of? That's one of the ways that Paul speaks of the church here and tells us what it is. Take a look at verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. It's one body. It's, it's many members. It's made up of lots of different people all joined together uh, in Jesus. So what is the body of Christ? Well, it's you if you belong to him. That's what he says later. You are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So it's, a, it's a, a grouping made of different constituent parts all put together. It's what it's composed of. Now, that's another way that the Bible speaks of the church in the New Testament, isn't it? So we get this image of the temple that Paul uses in Ephesians. That we're all being built together on one foundational cornerstone, Jesus Christ, built up by the apostles and the prophets into, into one body and into one dwelling. 
Peter says the same thing. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house. So we could answer this question in terms of, of what the body's made of, but we could also answer this question, what is the body of Christ? We could answer that by talking about where it comes from. This seems to be the central point that Paul wants us to get. When we think of what is the body of Christ, we could look at the constituent parts. We could look at the functions that happen within the church and the things that God's people do, but I think we ought to look at the church and say, well, it is the work of God. That's where it comes from. That's what the body of Christ is. It's the work of God. That's perhaps the best way to answer this question. Take a look at verse 13. This is a spiritual work of the Lord Almighty. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. That's a spiritual work, isn't it? To take all of these different constituent parts and to join them together in one body. And if we really understand what he's saying in this verse, we'll realize this is not the work of man. We've got our unions. We've got our groupings, we've got our guilds and our associations, but normally those all revolve around something familiar, something common between all the people that are in that group. There's certainly something common between all the people who are a part of the body of Christ. But it's not in us. It's something outside of us. It's the one Lord, the one hope, the one faith that we profess. And within that one unity, there is an enormous diversity. In fact, he points out two of the ways that humanity generally divides into its constituent groups. He's talking about racial differences here. He's talking about socioeconomic differences here. We've all been gathered into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves and free. Now, we would obviously, uh, and often in the church, like to think that the only way that we separate is you know, denominationally. We've got some theological differences, and, and we want to stand by the truth. And very often that happens, but there are other differences, aren't there? There are other ways that we divide among the body of Christ. Let's be honest, even within the same theological tradition, there are churches that are predominantly black that many white folks would not feel comfortable in. There are churches that are predominantly white that many black folks wouldn't feel comfortable in. If you're perceptive, if you've seen them, there are churches that are predominantly blue-collar or white-collar or whatever other demographic. And our general tendency and our sinful nature is to splinter off into tribalism in our own little groups. But the Lord says, no, by my spirit, I've gathered Jew and Greek, slave and free into one body because they profess one Lord. This is a work of God. So, As a side note, this reminds us that there's no room for racism in the church or for elitism in the church for that matter. Look down on those whose education hasn't risen to your attainment or to those who don't have a job quite the way that you have a job and don't run their family quite the way that you run the family. No, it's the work of God to take this group and to put it together. That's what the church is. It's the work of God. We see the same theme follow through the rest of the passage, don't we? Everything that is good in the church circles back to the one who's working in the church. He talks in one of these paragraphs about the beautiful diversity that ought to be in the church and all of the different parts. And then he comes to a conclusion at the end of that paragraph. In verse 18, as it is, God arranged the members in the body. Why does the church work well together, even though there are so many diverse pieces? Well, because God is at work. How is it the church can be unified, even though we have so many constituent parts? It's because God is at work, isn't he? 
Verse 25, God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body. What is the church of God? What is the body of Christ? It is the work of the Lord. Why is there anything resembling a kind of a structure in God's body, in Christ's body? Well, it's because God has appointed. God has appointed, verse 28, in the church, first apostles, prophets, teachers, and then all the rest. Everything comes back to God's work. It's the culmination of what He said He was going to do in the Old Testament, isn't it? Remember what the Lord said He was going to do in the days to come, His own very work by His own very Spirit, that I will pour out My Spirit on all flesh. It's not insignificant that when John comes along and begins to contrast his ministry to the ministry of Jesus, he says, you know, mine is a baptism with water, but there's one coming who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. It's not insignificant here in this passage in verse 13 that Paul says that we are all made to drink, to partake, to feed on one spirit. That's what the Lord does when he works in his people, isn't it? It's what he does when he pours himself into the people that he's joined to himself. He cleanses them and he nourishes them. God is at work in His church. What is the body of Christ? It's the work of the Lord. That's how we could answer this question. I don't know if you follow technology the way that I follow technology. I'm interested to see what's out there, even if I have no intention of buying it. It's just exciting and interesting to see these things. One of the things that was released most recently is the newest iPhone. Just about a week ago. And so you have all the people that have already lined up and will line up to get the new iPhone. And they've, they've given us three of them this time. There's the iPhone 8 and the iPhone 8 Plus, and that's the regular yearly iteration and the small bump and all the specs and all the things you expect. But then there's the iPhone 10. It's spelled with an X, a Roman numeral, to immediately separate the Apple intelligentsia from those who are not in the know. You call it the iPhone X or the iPhone, it's the 10. They had this, this huge uh, unveiling of the iPhone 10, and I didn't see it, but you can still go to Apple's website, and you can learn all about the iPhone 10. Oh, my. Specs and features and the camera and the processor and all the materials that it's made of and all the constituent parts and features upon features upon features upon features, but what is the first thing Apple wants you to know about the iPhone 10? When you go to that page and you scroll through, here's what they say. I'll try to do it in my best marketing voice. Our vision has always been to create an iPhone that is entirely screen. And with iPhone 10, that vision is now a reality. What are they telling you? Before you see the pieces and the parts, what are they telling you? This is the work of Apple. This is the brainchild of Steve Jobs that was never able to be executed within his lifetime. This is the zenith of all that we imagine a smartphone ought to be. This is what we have done. When you think of the church, when you think of the church, that same idea should be ringing in your head. This is the work of God. This is the apogee, the apex, the zenith, that he should take many different people and join them together in one diverse, unified body. This is what his plan for his people has always been. One people with one spirit glorifying one Lord. This is the work of God. Now, brothers and sisters, we ought not to take this very lightly, should we? That's the point. When we think of the body of Christ, when we think of His church, all the people He's joined to Himself, 
we cannot think of it as something that you can take or leave whether you want it or not. It's an add-on. It's an extra. Dear believer, if you have any interest in Christ, if you have tasted of the Spirit, if you've been cleansed by the blood of Christ with, which forgives your sins and cleanses away iniquity and impurity, you have been joined to a body. You might not yet understand it. You might not yet un- appreciate it. You might not realize it all the time. But the Lord has joined you to a body. It's, it's His work. It's a body comprised of many different people who probably don't look an awful lot like you. Might have very little in common with you in terms of uh, life stage, socioeconomic status, skin color, sex, whatever. Lots of different diverse people, yet it is one body. The Bible calls it a kingdom, calls it a priesthood, calls it a temple, calls it a bride. All the elect of God chosen from before the foundation of the world to be united in Jesus. And union with Jesus is union with his body. It's the work of God, and we ought not to take it lightly. That's how we answer that first question. What is the body of Christ? It's the work of God. On to the second question. How does, how does this body work, this gift that he's giving to us? Here again, there are multiple answers. There are two features in this passage that Paul is pointing out. We've already alluded to them in a little bit, uh, a little ways. Uh, but two features the Lord is working into his body that make it what it's meant to be. Both of them are essential to the body of Christ. Those two features are diversity and unity. The body can't function without diversity. The body can't flourish without unity. We need both of them. And Paul is telling us here uh, that this is exactly what God, in his work, in his people, is working into them. Take a look at that first idea, the idea that uh, without uh, diversity, there is no body. We see this in verse 14, in the chapter, or rather the paragraph that follows it. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. There's a diversity in the body, isn't there? It's not just one single little thing, but it's it's many different things uh, united and joined and working together. We see it again in verse 20. As it is, there are many parts. Verse 19, if if all were a single member, where would the body be? The body needs diversity. Here's the truth that every uh, high school biology student will tell you. That in any living thing, you need a diversity of parts working together in one whole. You don't have all those little parts, you don't have a body. And if you don't have the body, you don't have the life. This is true of our human bodies. Ask Lee later, he can give you much more detail as to which of these limbs and which of these appendages you can suffer to lose and, and not be too harmed. But when we really get into the organs and the things that make our bodies work, well, now we're dealing with things that you can't seem to lose too many of them and be okay. Modern medical marvels will allow you to live without some of them, and and a plethora of medications on the other hand. Your body's meant to be a diverse whole working all together. And the same is true even down to the smallest living organism. You take those uh, little cells that in that high school biology class you look at under the microscope, and if you were to blow them apart, you've got your nucleus, your mitochondria, and your endoplasmic reticulum, and all these other things that I found on the internet this week. But there are all these little parts that are working together to make that cell what it is, to make it living and moving and active. You need this diversity of parts. Diversity in the body is a non-negotiable, he's telling us. And he uses some examples to show us how absurd it would be if we were to think in the other direction. And so you imagine the foot, sullen and dejected. 
because all the foot does is carry the body around. And the hands are out there directing orchestras and writing letters and embracing loved ones. And oh, if I could only be a hand, then I would be of some use. And you imagine the body that's all seeing but yet never hearing. You imagine the isolation of, uh, of a body that hears everything clearly, yet cannot see the person who's speaking to them, cannot taste or touch or feel or move. If we were reduced to only one system, what a deficient body indeed that would be. Now, all of these illustrations aside, the sad reality is there are many people in the church who feel like the expendable organs in the body. There are many parts of the body that feel like they are the lone appendix, hidden away where nobody ever sees it, and if you would just remove it, I bet nobody would notice. There are many believers, many parts of the church that feel merely like the extra walk-ons in a stage play, adding a little bit of depth, a little bit of realism, but they don't really add anything to the plot. They don't move anything along. If you've ever felt like that, Paul's encouragement is simple. Without the whole body, without each of the parts, without the diversity in the body, there is no life and there is no health. The body needs every single part. It doesn't matter if your only outward contribution to the, the worship of the gathered church is to add your voice to the hymns that we sing or to add your amen to the prayers that we offer. That's being a part of the worshiping group of people that the Lord has joined to his body. It doesn't matter if you come here tone deaf. It doesn't matter if you're homebound. It doesn't matter if you're out of work or if you speak with a stuttering tongue. It doesn't matter if you wear a different color collar or have a different color skin. There is a dignity to every member in the body of Christ. Not because the members themselves are dignified, mind you, but because there is dignity in the Lord Jesus Christ. And all those he has joined to himself are dignified in him. Integral parts of his diverse body. There's another encouragement, though. Not only does diversity keep the body from being deficient, uh, but diversity makes the body delightful. That's a little alliteration for you. Diversity makes the body delightful. Take a look at verse 18. It says, as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. Well, that's kind of a flat rendering, as he chose. It'd be better if we went with a word like, as he willed, as he directed, or maybe even better yet, as he so desired. That's the word that's behind all this. Why does the body look like it does? Why is it so diverse and so many different pieces all working together? Because God delights that it should be that way. It is his desire to arrange the body exactly as he, as he has chosen. Now the image here is that verse and, and that section that we already read from Genesis chapter 2. Where the Lord forms man out of the dust of the ground and in perfect proportion and, and in his own image and then breathes the breath of life into his nostrils. But it happens with the body of Christ the same way that it happened in the garden. The Lord adds member to member, arranges them perfectly, puts them into place. He breathes the living spirit into dead flesh and unites them to Jesus and conforms them to the image of his son. And when it's all done, he stands back and he says, that is very good. Diversity makes the body delightful. There's this verse in the Old Testament, and I, 
I didn't write it down, and it's coming on top of my head, but it says the Lord sings over you and rejoices over you. When he sees his body and all of its parts, no matter how insignificant they may feel, you're a part of his body because he has so willed it and because he delights in it. And he sings songs of rejoicing over you, brother and sister. So the body works because of the principle of diversity. It's how God's designed the body to function, but it also works according to the principle of unity. The next set of illustrations that Paul uses uh, turns this whole thing on its head. In that section that we just looked at, verses 14 through 20, uh, all of those illustrations and the whole point uh, was to encourage those who thought that they were not important enough to really be a part of the body. In the next paragraph, beginning in verse 21, he turns it upside down and he's putting the brakes on those who think they are so important that they don't really need the body. So you get eyes and heads who have no need for hands and feet. You get presentable members who look down on the weaker brother. And sadly, this is the sort of thing that can happen in the church too, can it? This happens a lot with the movers and the shakers in the congregation. It's the sort of thing that can happen with chairmen of Presbyterian committees who finally have a group of people to do their bidding will and make their agenda the reality. It can happen with pastors who just delight to get in the pulpit and put the congregation in their place. Thank you very much. It can happen with the young married couple who feels that they really have nothing to learn from that elderly couple who sits across the aisle and raised their children 40 years ago. Really? It can happen in the elder who forgets that they've been called to shepherd sheep and not uh, to drive cattle. It can happen in that brilliant young lady who sits in Sunday school. The perfect picture of poise, composure, and godly submission, all the while silently scoffing at the ridiculous questions and the points that are raised on the other side of the room. And how could they be so silly? Truth is, this can happen to any of us. We somehow, in our prideful hearts, forget that we're supposed to be tipping our courteous hats to uh, to this idea of diversity, and we begin to think, well, I'm really the be-all and end-all of the church. It doesn't matter uh, what station I play, whether I'm a mover and a shaker, or I'm just kind of in and out, and nobody ever sees me. The church is here to meet my needs and to serve me. It can grip all of us. All we need to do is give it an inch to latch onto. See, the truth is, it's not enough just to have all the right parts in the church if all of those parts aren't working to support one another in a unified whole. Diversity doesn't work without unity, without really being joined together, as it says in this passage, to care for one another, to support one another, to rejoice in what happens in one another's lives. Otherwise, you have many different diverse body parts all working at loggerheads with one another is illustrated in a humorous poem uh, by Bill Watterson. What if my bones were in a museum where aliens paid good money to see them and suppose that they'd put me together all wrong, sticking bones onto bones where they didn't belong? Imagine phalanges, pelvis, and spine welded to mandibles that once had been mine. With each misassemblage, the error compounded. The aliens would draw back in terror, astounded. Paleontologists there would debate. 
dozens of theories to help postulate how man survived for those thousands of years with teeth-covered arms growing out of his ears. And we chuckle. And I hope you chuckle, because it's funny. That's why I put it in there. But the reality is that if the parts aren't working together in just the right way, the body becomes something grotesque rather than beautiful. A body that cannot feed itself and cannot move itself and cannot build itself up. That's the goal, isn't it? In Ephesians, Paul talks about the body. He says, it works this way, that when every part working together builds itself up in love, every joint joined to Jesus Christ, there has to be a unity in the body. There has to be a whole. And if all the parts are working only for themselves, the body becomes something grotesque. So how do we guard against that fractured sort of disunity? It can creep in in the church. Well, we return again to what God is doing to unite the body into one inseparable whole. Take a look uh, at verses 24 and 25. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Now that word in the middle of verse 24, God has so composed. That again is a bit of a flat translation. The King James gets it much better. God hath tempered the body together. The idea here is of some sort of artisan, a woodworker who makes the perfect dovetail joint that when the pieces are joined, you run your hand over it and you can't even feel where one piece begins and the other ends. The metal worker who takes uh, steel and iron and all of his different metals and he alloys them together in one indivisible hole that can't be separated. Maybe you grew up like me watching Bob Ross on PBS. There was an awful lot that was mesmerizing about Bob Ross, the way that he could go from blank canvas to full landscape in 30 minutes flat. His quiet demeanor, the way that he tried to encourage you and show you that oil painting really is the most effortless thing you'll ever do. One of the things that always mesmerized me was the way that he mixed the paint. Here he starts and he takes a little titanium white, a little phthalo blue, and just a little tiny tad of cadmium yellow. And he mixes it together, and then there's this beautiful hue, and he puts it on the canvas, and it just sings to you. Brothers and sisters, the beauty in the body is in the mixing. It's in the way that the Lord has taken all of these diverse parts and not left them in their constituencies, but he's joined them together and tempered them together into one inseparable whole in Jesus Christ. Now, the application here of this principle is very simple. What the Lord hath joined together, let not man separate. Maybe today you need to repent of the sin of tearing asunder what the Lord has joined. Maybe there's somebody sitting in this room that you need to have a greater care for. Somebody you've disregarded. Somebody you've looked down on. Maybe you need to ask the Lord to open your eyes to see the beauty of his diverse, united body. Okay. So we know what the body is. It's the work of God. We know how the body works. It works through these dual aspects of, of diversity and unity, which the Lord is working into it. And now the all-important question, what do I do with the body? Here's a curious thing. Because up until this point that we've seen so far in the passage, Paul hasn't explicitly told us to do anything. 
We've made inferences along the way. We've had a few applications. We've seen some things that we could uh, put this into place by doing. But he hasn't yet given us a directive. It doesn't come until the end. Because the point so far has not been what do you do with the body but that you ought to grasp the significance and the blessing of the body the Lord has given to you. He wants to draw your eyes to what the Lord is doing so that you too would stand back as an artist looking at the finished masterpiece and and be impressed at what they see. But at the end, in verse 31, he gives us something to do. He says, earnestly desire the higher gifts. Now, if we're not careful, that too can seem out of place. Hasn't Paul just spent all this time telling us that the Lord is sovereign, and he directs and appoints the body exactly as he wants it? As he just told us last week, we saw in 12.11, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. The sovereign Spirit, the sovereign Lord who joins His body together, who arranges the members and appoints order in His church. The composition of the body, the distribution of the gifts, it all comes at the direction of the Lord. And, And as verse 29 indicates, you know what? Not everyone in the church has the same gifting or the same standing. They're all important, they're all dignified, they all have a role to play, but there is a bit of an order that he's talking about here, and we might come to this and think, all right, with all of that in the back of our minds, the order the Lord has established, His sovereign will in creating this body, maybe the appropriate application is simply to be content. Not to try to do anything significant in the body, just just sit back and wait and see what the Lord will do. He's sovereign after all, He, He can do whatever He wants. And yes, that's true. We can so easily turn God's sovereignty into a form of fatalism. We say, I don't know, I'll be sanctified or not sanctified, it's up to the Lord. That's not honoring the Lord's sovereignty. The church will flourish or it'll flounder, I don't know, it's up to the Lord. That's not honoring the Lord's sovereignty. In fact, if we understand the Lord's sovereignty correctly, we understand that that's the only reason we have hope of doing anything good in the church, in the world, in our lives at all. We know that the Lord is the one who is moving. Otherwise, we're going to screw it all up on our own initiative. It is the more faithful thing to say, Lord, I believe that you are working and help me, give me your grace to engage with the church that you have given. That's the consistent thing here. Over and over again in the previous passage and the thing that we've just looked at today, we're impressed by God's work, God's commitment to his body. What is the height of godliness in the world? To love the things the Lord loves. To hate the things the Lord hates. To strive for the things the Lord also is striving to build up. And so shouldn't we be entirely committed to the body of Christ? This is what the Lord is doing. Isn't this what we ought to be doing? And so he says in that context that, that the Lord is at work, yes, but, but I want you to desire the greater gifts. Now, what does that mean? The higher gifts, the greater gifts. We're going to come back to this language, by the way, in chapter 14. He's going to use it twice when he's talking about the difference between prophecy and tongues. He's going to tell them, I want you to desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you should prophesy. And it will be clear, I hope, when we come to that discussion, that what he wants them to do is to strive for those things that can most unify and edify and build up the church. Not to seek to be divided in their own little cliques. And so it is here. Seek the higher gifts. Seek the better things. If we're going to be committed to the body, the question we ought to ask is, how can I be most beneficial to the body? 
Now, there might be some of you here who realize that you're not even a part of the body at all yet. It works in Christ's body just the same way it works in your body. There is a place where your flesh ends and the rest of the world begins. Christ's body is not a universalism. Not everyone is in. Who is in? Well, it's those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who have been cleansed of their sins by His shed blood, who have a hope in an eternal inheritance because He has been raised again. And they are members of His body. And maybe you've never done that today. Maybe you've never turned from your sin into the Lord. Maybe you've never cried out to Him in faith and said, Oh Lord, join me to you and join me to your body. Let me encourage you to seek Him today. That's how you can be committed to His body. Be committed to the Lord of the body. Jeremiah gives us an encouragement. He says, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. If you're outside the body today, seek Him with all of your heart. Be committed to His body. But if you're already a part of the body, what do you do? Well, maybe you need to ask the Lord to help you to discern which area you need to grow in. Do you need to rejoice more and more in the diversity the Lord has put in His body? Do you look down on others because they don't look like you in the church? Maybe you need to ask the Lord to help you grow in this area of appreciating the unity of the body and striving for the unity of the body. Do you look down on others because somewhere secretly you think that they're not pulling their own weight in the church? There's a little bit of discernment here. But regardless of what the Lord reveals in your heart as you search what He's doing, the call is to be committed to building up the body the best that the Lord will enable us. And with all the grace that He gives us, this is the way that the body does what it's supposed to do. We glorify the Lord, and we do that when we are committed to the body of Christ. Brothers and sisters, be committed to the body of Christ as the Lord gives you grace to do so. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our Father, we thank you. You have given us inestimable gifts. And that gift includes one another. And as we come in just a little bit to your table, you are going to gather a diverse body in one united act of eating and drinking spiritually upon the crucified and resurrected Savior. And so join us, O Lord, in communion with you and communion with one another that we should be something beautiful, the body you have intended. O Lord, help us to function well together and help us to flourish. Help us to be committed to the body of Christ as you enable us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.